And adults, if you'd like to turn back in your Bibles to page 222 or 221, that's the passage we're going to be thinking about together. But as we begin, you'll be very aware that as we come to the end of August and as September comes around, it's nearly a time for a new school year. Now, some of you, and I can see Joshua over there, that will mean going back to school. For others, that will mean less kids around and different noises during the day outside your, uh, your window, or whatever it might be. But in t- to introduce the big idea from our Bible passage this morning, I want you to begin by imagining a school classroom in, this, uh, in, in the coming up first week of school. I want you to imagine that the teacher is actually a parent of one of the children in their class. I don't know if any of you have ever been uh, teachers and taught your children, or if you've had parents who are teachers, um, but it's quite an interesting situation, isn't it, when your own child is in the class, uh, one in which I think people wonder about, what does it look like for the teacher, who's also the parent, to be fair? How does the teacher ensure that they are fair? So we imagine in this first week of lessons, one of the pupils in class is really naughty. They talk out of turn. After being warned, they continue to be disruptive. They're warned again and again, but they don't stop it. And so the teacher punishes them. It's the first week of term. They make an example of them. They punish them as strongly as the rules allow. They get the maximum punishment. And that's fine. But it's what happens next that makes it really interesting. Next, this teacher's own child proceeds to follow the bad example. They do exactly the same thing. They talk out of turn. They're warned continuously, again and again, but they continue to uh, behave inappropriately. What do you think the teacher's going to do? They might be inclined to be too lenient. I mean, if they really love their child, And if they always want the best for them, perhaps they they won't dish out the punishment that's deserved. Perhaps you feel like there's a danger of the opposite happening. Perhaps they'll punish their own child too strongly in a bid to be seen as as not having favourites. Maybe they'll come down too hard. Perhaps it's because they know their own child better or they expect more from them. Perhaps they can read their body language, their behaviour more quickly and become more irritated by it very quickly. There are all sorts of possibilities. And I think you can realise it's a quite an interesting moment. It's a test for the teacher. How will they deal with their own child misbehaving? Well, actually, that scenario in the school classroom is quite a neat parallel to the situation that God finds himself in here in Joshua chapter 7. If you were here last week, you'll remember that God himself brought his people victory at a fight at Jericho. And he did that as a judgment, as a punishment for the sin of the Canaanites. Well, in this chapter, we see that his own people, you could imagine his own child, committing a sin for which they need to be judged. And the fairness of God is going to be revealed. Does he have favourites? Will he treat his people differently or unfairly to other people? And of course, what we're going to see is that God is not too lenient. He's not unfair. He's not overly harsh. 
he doesn't know any one person more than any other. He sees and knows everyone just the same. So that's the first lesson we're going to see from this passage. That God is fair. He has no favourites. That should come up on the screen. God is fair. He has no favourites. Last week, Ray, who preached for us, explained that the Canaanites in in Jericho were not randomly destroyed by God, uh, but God himself was bringing his judgment upon them for their sin. Now, if you want to try and get your head around that further, either listen to what Ray said last week on our website, or come and speak to me, if that's something that really troubles you. But I want to start by explaining what the sin is today. In our passage, what did God's people actually do wrong? And the headline was there for us in verse 1. Have a look at verse 1. It said right in the beginning, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. You see, the issue here is not just about the practicalities of law keeping, but to do with the heart. They don't trust and follow God as they should. They are unfaithful to him. And if you flick back, actually, to uh, last week's chapter, chapter 6 and verse 17. Have a look at these words. Chapter 6 and verse 17. God said, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. Verse 18. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Do you see, this is the warning. And not only were the people absolutely aware of this, but Joshua reminds them again on the seventh and final day when they're marching around the city, just before they sound the trumpets, just before they charge in to take the city. Achan knew exactly what he was getting himself into. But what did he actually do? What actually took place? I think I always used to imagine that Achan was this brave warrior who was doing his job. He was rushing into Jerusalem, uh, fighting alongside his uh, fellow compatriots, and he stumbled across somebody as he was fighting, who had stored and had a secret stash with this robe and with this gold and this silver. Uh, Maybe it's in a little back street of Jericho. He's on his own and he sees it and perhaps it's a moment of weakness. He shoves it in his backpack and forgets about it and gets on with the fight. That's how I think I imagined it. But that isn't what happens at all. Look at verse 27. uh, Sorry, 21. In his confession... Chapter 7, verse 21. Achan's explaining what he did when he's been called out. He explains, after the battle, when the heat of battle is gone, he goes to visit the plunder. I guess who knows why he was there. Perhaps he deliberately went to go and have a look. See all this gold and precious stuff that's been taken. Perhaps he was already longing to take some of it for himself and his family. I don't know, maybe he worked there and he was supposed to be guarding it. Anyway, he sees the robe. He sees some gold and some silver which he thinks he'll be able to snatch secretly. He works out a way to take it without anyone knowing and he snatches it 
and he brings it home. And what a sneaky hero he feels. When he brings it to the tent, he shows his family. They all get to admire it, touch it. Perhaps they're, they're dreaming of all the things they could buy with it. And they decide to bury it in the ground, inside their tent, so that no one else will find it. Now we know for sure that no one else amongst the Israelites knew about it, because God had been clear in his warning. If you do this, I'll not be with you, I won't fight for you. And yet the fighters go up against I. And what happens? They're defeated. In verse 3, when the spies say, we can win this victory, we don't need all the men, we have no reason to doubt them, they were right. They should have and could have easily won the victory. No one else knew, or they would have warned them. No one also dobs them in, do they? Joshua explained what was about to happen the night before, as they cast lots and uh, the lot eventually falls on Achan. Joshua explained what was going to happen. But no one dobs Achan in. Why? Well, because no one knew. But we also, and this is important, we know for sure that his family were involved too. I think this is something that people find puzzling, and perhaps you found it puzzling when the reading uh, was, was given. Achan isn't the only one punished. His whole family is punished. How is that fair, we think? Well, because they were all involved. God, who is a fair judge, sticks to his own rules, his own law. And God himself, and Joshua, the leader of God's people, would have known very well Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, which says this. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. Each one will die for their own sin. Do you see? God's law says that they shouldn't have been punished if it was just his sin. No, the whole family was involved. They all knew God is fair. And the big lesson here is that God is fair and he has no favourites. He doesn't punish the other nations and spare his people and let them off just because he likes them best. No, like the teacher with their own child in the class, God here is confronted with the sin of his own people and he does punish it just like he punished the sin of the Canaanites. God is fair and just. So it's no good saying... I'll be okay, I'm one of God's people. That's what people in the Old Testament actually end up doing. They say, oh, I'm descended from Abraham, I'll be okay. No, God will judge his own people too, just like the nations. He is fair. So don't think of God as treating people differently, meeting out punishment here, but not there. God is completely fair. That means when his own people sin... They are setting themselves against him, just like anyone else. And their sin needs to be punished. But of course, that is a good thing. It's a good thing that God is fair. He won't treat your friend better or worse than anyone else. He won't treat that nation better or worse than anyone else, or more harshly. Nothing like that. God is fair. But of course, that does remind us that sin is a real problem. And that brings us to the second lesson of this passage. 
which isn't simply that sin is a serious problem and that it will be punished. We saw that to some extent last week. The lesson is this. Sin is never secret. Sin is never secret. And that should be absolutely no surprise to us at all. After all, Jesus says, my father sees what is done in secret. And we know that the Lord knows our thoughts, even before words become words. Uh, He knows what's in our heads. And we know the Lord looks on the heart. And yet we get this really dramatic reminder that no sin is secret. So just, just imagine the tension that morning. Verse 16. Joshua is casting lots. And the Lord is supernaturally, miraculously making the lots fall in the right place. He is the one deciding who's ultimately going to be the one man who steps forward. Imagine Achan. Imagine how he would have been feeling. He's thinking to himself, no one saw me. I did such a good job. No one in the family is going to say anything. We talked that through. They wouldn't be so stupid. He thinks, oh, I just need to keep my head down. Keep quiet. Try to avoid looking shifty. Uh, I mean, there are thousands of us here. I'm going to be fine. The whole thing will just blow over in a couple of weeks. And I'll end up really wealthy. That's what he's thinking. Just got to keep calm. But then what happens? The lots are cast. Judah is called forward. And he and his whole tribe have to step forward. He's thinking, oh, rats. But I suppose it had to be someone... I look around me. Everyone's feeling nervous in our tribe. Then the Zerahites are called forward. And then Zimri's called forward. And there are 15 of them left standing there. And he's thinking, wow, is this actually going to happen? How could this be? Then Achan himself is chosen. He alone has to stand forward. The blood rushes to his head. His heart's pounding. And Joshua says to him, give glory to God. What have you done? And with his tongue dry, sticking in his mouth, terrified, he admits what he's done. You see, Achan was exposed and found out before people, before he got down on his knees and confessed his sin and said sorry to God. It's too late. It's too late. He had all night. Joshua warned the people what was going to happen. He could have come to God in prayer. He could have come to Joshua in the night and said, I'm sorry. But he took his chances with the lots. And he found out the hard way. Sin is never secret. God knew. God saw. And God called him out. The thing is, I say that, but countless people today make exactly the same mistake, don't they? Both Christians and non-Christians make a habit of hiding things, trying to, we say, sweep things under the carpet. Or we could, from this passage, say, trying to hide it in a hole. But I wonder, I wonder if any of us right now has a secret sin that we are hiding, a sin that has a a cherished place in our heart that no one knows about, and we think, nobody knows, I'll get away with it. No, sin is never secret. And I'm thinking about all sorts of things, big things, things like gambling, alcoholism, pornography. People always think that that one's secret. Addicts can sometimes be brilliant at covering up. 
sometimes awful. They think they're good. But either way, these things destroy lives. Even if you do hide those things, it forces you to live your life in a kind of secret world of lies. But sin is never secret. God knows, and it will be exposed one day. I'm also talking about really small things. Things like illegal music downloading, or slightly exaggerated expense claims, or even nursing that bitterness towards somebody in your heart as you uh, chew on resentment against them over and over. No one needs to know that, do they? I wonder what it is for you if there is something. I wonder if God is making you aware of it now, reminding you of it. Sin is never secret. It could be a sin from the past, something long, long ago. You almost don't remember it yourself. It's gone. It's forgotten about. I just pretend it never happened and carry on, we think. But it's never forgotten. Sin is never secret. You need to sort that out. It could be that you're treating another person. It could be uh, that they know and you know, but because of the meanness and the bullying, that they're afraid to say anything and you keep it quiet too. But sin is never secret. See, what God wants is a really holy people. Not a people who look holy, but a people who are holy. It's not good enough to clean up the look. You need to clean up the inside too. So what should we do? Should we follow the example of Achan? Just keep quiet and take our chances? No. If you're a Christian, uh, you know that you shouldn't ignore your sin. You shouldn't pretend that that sin from the past never happened. No, you should confess your sin to God. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Achan had a chance but didn't take it. Sin does deserve punishment. And if you're a Christian, Jesus bears that punishment for you. And he already has. Uh, If you don't understand it, that is why the cross is so important to Christians. Because that's where... He bore that punishment for us. See, look, you don't even need to try and keep your sin secret because Jesus offers you freely forgiveness. And he says, there's nothing hidden that won't be disclosed, nothing concealed that won't be made known and brought out into the light. So bring it out into the open with him. Confess your sins to God. Seek his forgiveness and he'll grant it to you in Christ. It could be actually also with some of these things, you need to talk to another person about it as well. Um, If you're unsure, perhaps come and speak to me about that. Later on in the service, we're going to share bread and wine together as we remember that Jesus gave his body and his blood. And we're told that before we do that, we should examine ourselves. So today we're going to say our confession just before we come to communion. So that we do precisely what Achan didn't do. We come forward to God. We acknowledge our sin. We don't try and hide it from him. And we seek his forgiveness. God is fair. He has no favourites. And sin is never secret. But having heard that, you might be wondering to yourself, okay, well, how can anyone be forgiven then? We all sin. We all have a problem with sin. We can't hide it. 
How can it be that anyone is forgiven? Well, that's our final lesson, and it's this. Number three, we must remain in his covenant. We must remain in his covenant. And I want us to see this in the passage, that there is hope. A sinful people can avoid God's judgment. So the answer is we must remain in his covenant. Have a look down at verse 1 again. There's that hint. The problem was that they were unfaithful to him. Not the problem that they're not perfect. The problem that they're unfaithful to him. But have a look at this. In verse 6, Joshua falls on his face before God. He is desperate and upset because the warriors have been defeated. And look what God says to him in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. Do you see? Do you see what God is saying? Joshua fears that God is not really with them. Joshua says, aren't you going to stick by us, Lord? Aren't you going to keep your promise? And God says, don't be ridiculous. Get up, you silly boy. They broke my covenant. They broke my commands. You need to go and sort that out. Sinful people need to remain in God's covenants. They can be saved, not by being perfect, but by staying within his covenant. You see, that covenant provides a way for sinful people to be friends with God. A way to be forgiven. A way to escape judgment. And see how in verse 13, the people can be consecrated. God says to them, verse 13, go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. That means there's a ritual they can follow, which God commanded, to make them clean. God has made provision. Not, you've got to live perfectly. You've got to follow his way. Be consecrated and made clean. And God tells us how we do that. It's very simple. We confess our sins. We follow and live for Jesus. We do that with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength. Very simple. You can pray one short prayer. Take 20 seconds and you're part of God's covenant people. But the objection comes and I can can hear it in some people's minds. Oh Dan, that's unfair. If God gives this covenant to some people but not to others, he's showing favouritism. That's exactly the opposite of how you started. Well, the answer is no. Anyone can join his covenant people. And we saw the perfect example of that two weeks ago, Rahab. She's a Canaanite, not one of God's people. She's a prostitute. She's a lady of the night. She is a a sinner. And she was able to turn to seek God's mercy and to become part of his covenant people. And that is still true today. Anyone can become a follower of Jesus. No matter what your hidden sins are. No matter what you've done. And and you might have done some truly horrible things. No one else might know them apart from you and God. And yet, you can become part of God's covenant people. He will forgive you. Completely. Totally. You simply need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've done wrong against you. Please forgive me because of Jesus. And please, with his death... Pay for all of my sin. And then it will. Lord, I want to live your way. Help me to follow and live for Jesus. And he will. That's it. No favoritism. 
Anyone can join. And to be honest, you would be crazy not to. Crazy not to come under his covenant. Each of us can and must remain within the covenant people of God. I'm going to pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that you are utterly fair. Lord, show us our hidden sin. Persuade us. Change our attitudes that we wouldn't ever want to hide it. And keep us all within. Or bring us into your covenant promises. That we would receive forgiveness. And remain close to you. Enjoying being one of your people. 